So um, I graduated from uh, Harry S. Truman High School in Taylor, Michigan. It's a suburb of Detroit. Uh, the school was built in 1971, opened in 1973, and it was a combined high school, and then the other side was a middle school. And in, in 1970s, the big idea, the big thought was open schools, open architecture. And so the way this school was built is there were big open areas. Um, and these, these big, huge, like octagonal shaped open areas would be where the classroom rooms were. And what they would do is they'd roll in these dividers, these like cabinets, and they, they would divide up this area. And there was no walls, no doors. It was just wide open. And this was kind of the hip 1970s theory of, of school. Kind of prepared you for being in an office where you're not in an enclosed room and it's nice and quiet. You're in an open office space. Um, but it made for interesting school. So there were times when I would be in, um, in government and get bored and I'd just kind of lean against one of those dividers and listen to the psychology professor in the next cube over talking. Um, it, was, it was an interesting experience. By the way, they've gotten away from that. <laughs> they, they went in and built walls. They figured out about the end of the 1970s when I was graduating, this isn't working. And so they put walls in. Um, but the way the place was laid out, even the library didn't have four walls boxing it in. It had three wall, two or three walls in the back and there were um, offices and there were reading rooms and that kind of stuff. But the front of it, the part that faced the hallway was wide open and it just had uh, study tables lined up to mark it off. And that was kind of the way the library was laid out. Well, the people who hung out in front of the library were the jocks. They were the athletes of the school, the uh, track stars, the football stars, the basketball stars and the cheerleaders. And uh, they were the elite, the people that were the cool ones uh, the ones everybody wanted to be like, sort of, or at least they thought they were. Um, and that was that group. And now these folks were not horrible human beings. I'm friends still with some of them. Um, one of these folks, though, they're really connected. One of these folks went on to become the mayor of Taylor. So one of my classmates was the mayor of the city. That was that group. Well, the hallway kind of turned in front of the library. And when it ended, there was a set, two sets of double doors going outside to the parking lot. And when you went outside those double doors, that was something called the smoking area. And that's where the burnouts hung out. Now think about this for a second. This sounds weird saying it in, in 2020, but at a high school, there was a smoking area. <laughs> Technically we shouldn't have been allowed to buy cigarettes and yet there was a designated smoking area. The other thing that sounds weird from the 1970s is there was a designated smoking area. Back in the 70s, he smoked wherever he wanted in the restaurant, in an elevator, in a taxi, whatever. Everybody smoked everywhere, but we had a designated smoking area. So it was kind of weird. This is where the burnouts hang out. And the burnouts were not the jocks. They were the people who were not so interested in going to college necessarily. They were a little rougher around the edges. Um, they tended to be a little tougher. Um, but you know what I found was the burnouts were a little bit more welcoming. They, they were a little bit more open to letting people in. The jocks, you kind of had to attain to. But the burnouts, they would welcome pretty much anybody unless they thought you were a narc. And by the word mar narc, I don't mean a narcotics officer. I mean, if you would tattle, they would not tolerate that. And um, their, um, their rejection was a little more physical than with the jocks. Um, but they weren't like dropout horrible people who went off to do nothing. Some of these guys, I've, I've caught up with them on Facebook they got their own businesses. They're doing construction and car repair and stuff. So these were successful people too. 
And these were the two big groups in high school were the jocks and the burnouts. And one of the things that was kind of funny is depending on which group you were in, you were in it at the time, they would use the name of the other one as an insult. So if you're hanging out with the burnouts, they'd say, what are you, some sort of jock? And that was supposed to be a bad thing. And the jocks were, oh, man, you're a big burnout. Um, that was kind of how you, you saw the big two things in high school were these two groups. But there were other groups as well. There were other people kind of like me wandering through the halls, not having a place to hang out, trying to avoid both of them. Um, <laughs> one, one of the jocks, I don't know why he did this. Their, their lockers tended to be up by the, the gym or the um, library as well. Um, there was one of us nerd, I don't know what we were called. We weren't called nerds back then. One of us walking by and one of the jocks pulled out of his locker, his aftershave and poured it on this guy as he walked past. Now this was in the days before Axe. So this wasn't, you know, high school Axe. This was probably Burma shave or Old Spice or something like that. And that was a big stink about that. But I mean, if you went out the other door, you might get beaten up. So who knows? Um, between those two, there were us. There were people like me and we tended to group up as well. Uh, so like the honor society kids, I was not one of them, but I knew them. I knew a couple of kids who were in the top 10 uh, graduates of our class. Our class was over 300 people. And so this top 10 was a distinct group. And if you think that they were you know, just nice everyday people, they had their own little cliques too. One of the top 10 people, um, one of the guys complained to me, he said, he took all the easy classes. I'm taking calculus and I'm getting, you know, this, whatever his score was. And this other guy is taking like basic math. He, he took all the easy classes to get in the top 10. So there was a little clickish thing going on there too. Um, my group was the band. Um, I had a uh, concert band and jazz band. And then in, in season, I was doing marching band after that. So we were a little bit more open because if you could play an instrument and you were in the band, you're in the band, you know, weren't so clickish. And then there were theater people and, and so we all kind of made fun of each other and teased each other and everybody made fun of the theater kids and most everybody made fun of the band and nobody made fun of the jocks and uh, the burnouts made fun of everybody else. Um, it seemed like a pretty diverse group. But I'll tell you what, when we played a football or a basketball game against our arch rival, Taylor Center High School, you saw these groups come together. Now the burnouts were under the bleachers smoking something. Um, the jocks were out, largely out on the field playing and the band was in the stands making noise, but they were our rivals. And so we came together and we rooted for them. Those, this is our team and go out and beat those rotten Taylor Center High School people. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally there, a fight would break out. And that's when you saw everybody kind of lock arms and this is us. You're messing with Truman. We're Truman people. Back off. Well, that's just high school. Why did I wind up in high, why was I at Truman High School instead of Kennedy or Taylor Center? Because of where I lived. It wasn't any decision I made or any, you know, anything like that. It's just where they drew the lines. And yet we had 10-year reunions and 20-year reunions and we had this sense of identity. We are Truman High School. Well, what Peter is gonna show us this morning is there is something about us that is so much stronger and so much greater than a high school identification. And so when we look at this, we got to look and say, we have divisions and we have groups within us, but we have something that binds us together that will last longer than the identity of Truman High School. Because Taylor Center was torn down. It doesn't exist anymore. They turned the high school into, instead of high school and middle school, they turned it into one giant high school. It's gone. So there's, there's no more Truman Center or Taylor Center. 
but we have something that's going to endure and that's going to last. And so what he's going to do this morning for us as we look at these last section, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, he's going to bring together everything he's taught us so far and, and show us what our new identity is and how strong and abiding that is. And so a lot of what we're going to hear, we've heard before, but he's going to put it in a slightly different context. In other words, Peter's preaching. He has done all the theology at the beginning. In this section, he's beginning to apply it. What is the application of all of this truth that we've had so far? So we're going to reach back and look at what he's told us before and bring it into what he's saying now. And so looking at verse 22, he begins, having purified your souls. Um, we haven't heard the word purified so far in this, but it's kind of rooted in the same root as the word holy. We've heard holy a couple of times or um, purified, holy, that kind of thing. Uh, but we have definitely heard about our souls before. So he says, having purified your souls. Well, the first question is, how have we purified our souls? How have our souls been purified? And if you look back at verse 9, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So how did, how did, how did our souls become purified? Our, our souls became purified because they were saved. How were they saved? They were saved through faith. So he starts off by having purified your souls, and he's bringing in what he's told us before. You're purified, you're saved by faith. And so that's the first answer to how is, how is our soul purified, but it's not all he has to say on it. So the next thing he says is, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And obedience and truth are two subjects that have come up before. He's shown us this a couple of times. Um, as a matter of fact, in verse 14, he, he called us obedient children. So we have purified our souls through faith, and we've done it by being obedient, as obedient children. And what he said in verse 14 was, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So there's the idea of what came before, our, our former ignorance, we've purified ourselves, we moved away from that. And our obedience is because we're children. And so we have been adopted into God's family. We're God's children now. And that leads us through faith to obedience. And that's the, the next way that we purify our souls. Now, that idea of obedience comes up again at the very beginning. When Peter introduced us to who we are, he said, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And that's kind of the theme of this is we're exiles. And the, the, the thing that Peter has been repeating throughout chapter one is, have hope. So that's our, our sermon series title is having hope in, in the exile. So those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, how do we become elect exiles? According to the foreknowledge of God, the father, God knew this beforehand. He had planned it beforehand in the sanctification of the spirit. That's the next way that uh, that word purified comes out is sanctification is to be made holy. It's, it's that same root in there. The sanctification of the spirit, the spirit is doing that work in us for obedience to Jesus Christ. So the point of what he's doing and where he's leading us is to obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood for when we're not obedient. So we were exiles according to God's foreknowledge in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience. And in that obedience, because of everything that God had done there, foreknowledge, work of the spirit, all of that leads to having purified our souls. So this is our new identity. We've been purified and what is the outcome that Peter is looking for? Where is he, he hoping that we go with this? This is what I mean by he's going to apply it now. 
says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for, for what? For doctrinal precision, to have excellent, outstanding doctrine. How about high moral standards? Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for exquisite moral standards. Those are part of it, but that's not what he says. That's not the most important thing. That's not the, the, the highest point of what God has been doing in us. His, his very next phrase is, for, the reason for all of this, for a sincere brotherly love. That's why we have been, that's why our consciences have been cleaned. That's why we've been adopted. That's why we've been brought in so that we can have sincere brotherly love. Love for one another or love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the purification that we've had. So this is where it goes is, is I'm not saying we don't need to worry about doctrine or, or practice. Those are important, but here's the problem. If you set doctrine as your ultimate goal, if you say, I just want to have excellent doctrine, I know people, and I'm sure you've met them too, who are doctrinally precise in every way, shape, and form, and are miserable, just rotten people, intolerant. If you don't agree with them on, on every little finite thing that they've narrowed down, they are just impossible to be around. They set their goal on a doctrine first, and so now they're just horrible to be around. Or, you know, people who are very particular about their moral standards, how they live, what they do, how they behave. And, and some people who get like that can be so judgmental. They, they just can't understand. I can do it. Why can't you? Or they look down on you, and you just don't want to be around them. They're so judgmental and yucky. It's, it's great. You're, you're pure and you're wonderful. Be alone, for heaven's sake. So if you set those things as your primary target, as your chief goal, that's what I'm aiming for, you'll lose them. You won't achieve them. You can actually fail by succeeding if that's your goal. So Peter is warning us. He's not saying ignore that stuff. He's saying put it in the right order. Purify your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. If you set your goal at love, then you can achieve doctrinal precision you can achieve high moral standards and not be an insufferable human being that nobody likes. You can actually be a benefit to the body. You can then do what he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's possible. Now, I remember when my eyes opened to this, that I was getting to be one of these types of people. Um, I can't remember. I think it was here, but I can't remember exactly what the context was. It was a song by Twyla Paris, How Beautiful. And I remember the song going on and I got to a certain point and my heart sank and went, I don't believe that, that's terrible. And, and I think the, the lyrics were, how beautiful the radiant bride who waits for her groom with his, with his light in her eyes. How beautiful when humble hearts give the fruit of pure lives so that others may live. And then the chorus, how beautiful. How beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. And I can remember stopping and going, I don't think it is. I think it's a hot mess because they're not doctrinally accurate. And that broke my heart. That's when I went, I can't live like that. That's wrong. I had set as my goal doctrinal precision. I don't abandon that goal. But when it leads me to distrust and to dislike my brothers and sisters in Christ who don't agree with me, that's a problem. So thank you, Twyla Paris, for that song. So don't give up on doctrine. That's not what Peter's calling us to. He's reminding us that we are obedient to the truth. Truth is in that. But give up on the pride that can come with it. 
don't, don't give up on moral purity. He says obedience to the truth. Obedience is actions. It's what you do. So don't give up on that, but don't set that as your ultimate priority. The way that all of this is flowing, how we can be exiles in hope is by love for the brothers, by, by caring about each other, by actually loving what's going on. So look at the chain of thought that he's got here. He says, having purified your souls by obedience to truth for brotherly love. That's the chain. And, and you can't leave any of it out. Obedience, it's got to be there. Truth, it's got to be there, but it's got to be for brotherly love. And so trust that God is working in these brothers and sisters around you. That's what his point is. That's where he's going to lead us next with this. So these other things are not unimportant. Don't give up on them. But we've got to get that idea of love right. So if I've set my sights, my goal on brotherly love, and I still have some doctrinal precision in there, is it loving if I have a brother or sister in Christ who has got some really mixed up doctrine, just really a hot mess of doctrine? Is that loving them? Is a brotherly love to, to look at them and go, oh, God bless you? It's not. What we have to do is we have to remind them of the truth. That's what we're called to do. So I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. See what he's saying? How you should behave in the household of God, which is about truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the spirit, vindicated or manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in on the world or believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Huge doctrinal statement about how you should behave. So it would not be loving to look at a brother or sister who, who's got something wrong there and say, go and be blessed. But we don't put the doctrine first and say, you're not my brother or sister because you've messed up this one fine point. Um, especially the return part, portion, maybe that he, he's going to come, he's going to be returning in glory. We have a difference of opinion on how that's going to happen, and that's okay. But there are other things that are really essential, and we got to hang on to them. Would it be brotherly? Would it be brotherly love to come uh, to know somebody in the church who is living a pattern in their life that's not in accordance with what the scripture says, and just say, well, you know, it's, it's between them and the Lord, and, you know, go and be blessed? It wouldn't be brotherly love. It would be a lack of brotherly love to either judge them and be snotty towards them or to ignore them. And so I'm thinking of, of verses like 1 Corinthians 6 to remind them, look, this, this is what it means to be saved. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So you go to this brother who's not living in accordance with what the scripture says, and you don't tell him, you know, good luck with that. You remind them, this is who you were, brother. That's who you were. That's not who you are now. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. 
Now live in accordance with the truth. So that's what I mean about don't throw them out, but don't put that first either. If we put it first, then we'll chide them for not being perfect. Or we'll chide them for not having the right doctrine. But if we put love first, then we'll come alongside and say, now live, live according to what you believe. And, and here's what you believe. Here's the truth. And it's a, it's a much more loving approach that Peter is pointing us to. How on earth can we do this? I don't have the patience sometimes. I, I, it's hard for me to look at somebody who doesn't get it and just, come on, Bucky, straighten up. You know what you're doing. How can we have those things? Well, we have to be reminded of how we were saved so that we can remind them of how they were saved. And so that's where Peter goes with us. In verse 23, he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So remember that chain that we said earlier, purified your soul by obedience to truth for brotherly love, and now it's since. Since you have been regenerated, since you have been born again. In other words, that former life that he's told us, don't, don't be conformed to that anymore. Stop going that way. The reason you can stop going that way is not because God has told you enough that you better listen, but you have been born again. You've been brought into God's family as obedient children. And as wonderful as human adoption is, God's adoption is even more amazing because it's not just God saying, okay, now you're my child. He says, now you're born again into my family. Now you have been born again, and now you're part of my children. Now be obedient, children. Since you have been born again, that's how we got to be there. That's how we got to be in this family. And he said, the, what we've been born again with is not perishable seed, but imperishable. And so do you remember at the beginning of what he said, he said, according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven. Now he's saying you've been regenerate. You've been born again by something that is not perishable, something that is imperishable. It's that same thing. He's saying the same thing, but he's saying it in a slightly different way for us. So this is what he's calling us to remember is you have been born again. And the thing that you have been born again by is not going to fade away. It's not going to let you down at some place. In other words, you're born again and it doesn't, you don't outgrow it. You don't fall off of it. It doesn't like leave you stranded. Whatever has born you again is imperishable. It will always be in you. And what is that? It is the abiding word of God. That's what we've been born again through. We have heard the message that was preached to us. He's going to bring that up at the end. And that message, if it's right, it's the abiding word of God. It's, it's at work within us. Where he goes next is he quotes Isaiah 40. And he says, for, so there's another connecting word, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of God remains forever. So what he's telling us is, look, you're, you're a physical human being. You're, you have a physical property to you that is fading. If you put your hope in that, the, the flower fades, the grass, grass withers. This body is going to wear out. Most of us know that. We're pretty, pretty much aware of it. Um, uh, for your younger folks, be good to your knees. You're going to miss them when they're gone. And, and enjoy your eyesight while it lasts. I was talking with a couple of people, 40 years old, and blam, all of a sudden you can't read anything. So enjoy it while you have it, but it's fading. 
It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. It's like a flower, but, but its glory fades. And so don't put your hope in what you have now. What comes afterward will be imperishable. What we have now is fading. And so that's where he goes. It's, it's almost like it doesn't fit. Why are you bringing this up now? Is Peter is trying to focus our attention away from what you physically have. I can run a flat whatever mile per hour or something like that. Yeah, wonderful. So you jocks, great. You guys can, you know, kill it on the basketball court. Can you still do that now? You still so good at it now? We're at the age we're at, which I will leave undisclosed. But if you want to do the math, I graduated in 1980. So probably not the, the best anymore. The flower fades. But look at what he's telling us is, is we have something that lasts immeasurably more. It is the word of God that remains forever. That's what you've been born again to. That's what renewed your heart, your heart, your soul, your spirit has been born again with something that will never break down. We have to be born again. And what does that look like? Well, well, to be born again is, is to not be born of the flesh, but of the spirit. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, in other words, it's not your, your uh, genealogy that does it, it's not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, it wasn't something you just dreamt up one, one day, nor the will of man, it isn't a sociological event, it is of God, that's how we're born again, we're born again of God, of his word, and we're adopted and brought into his family, that's what causes us to be born again, and listen to what he says at the end. He says, and this word, this word that's imperishable, that's never fading, the word of the Lord that abides forever, this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's what you were told. That's the word that never fades. It's the word that never goes away. So what the Lord is saying is that Isaiah, when he wrote that, he's writing these things. Remember what Peter told us about the prophets? He said that they long to look into these things. He says that... Um, Isaiah was carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in him was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's the word that was preached to you. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah 53 and he goes, I don't get this. And the Holy Spirit picks up, Peter, or, uh, picks up Philip and drags him over there and says, now go talk to him and explain to him what he's reading. That's the imperishable word of God. Isaiah didn't probably understand it either. He's longing to understand. He's peering into it. It was revealed to him that he was serving not himself, but us. And the things that we have now been announced to us through those who have preached the good news to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even the angels long to look. So he's bringing that truth to us. He's saying, that's the imperishable word of God. That's what you've been born again to. That's how God's done it. Will that other fade? Will that ever wind up disappearing from, from the, the face of creation and what comes after creation? No, listen to what Jesus promised in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. So it's not just your bodies, folks. It's the ground you're standing on. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So that's what draws us together. That's how we can have common brotherly love. That's how we can share that brotherly love, how we can love from a pure heart. God's purified our heart. So when you look at your brother or sister and you go, you know, I'm not crazy about that person. Recognize they're born again. They're born with that same imperishable spirit. You're going to be around them for eternity. So get used to them. Love them with a love that's from a pure heart. How can I do that? It's not easier. We're, we're waiting for the other half of our redemption. 
when the body is, is changed out for the new model. But until then, we have to remember that this is what God is doing. This is his church, his plan. Beautiful is the body of Christ, whether you like it or not. And so that's where his hope goes. That's why he's bringing us through this idea of you elect exiles. You're not just the jocks. You're not just the burnouts. You're not just the theater kids. You're Truman High School. You're the whole thing. The parts you like, the parts that aren't so wonderful. Now, of course, there are boundaries, right? There, there was places where people were not part of Truman High School. And if they came on campus, they got chased away. So there are boundaries that we have to set. And, and there are people we have to chase off. There are people who are wolves who will come in and try to devour the flock and we need to chase them away. Um, Mark Driscoll, for all his huge failings, one of the best things he ever said is the role of the, the church is to um, feed the sheep, rebuke the pigs, and shoot the wolves. The trick is understanding the difference between the pigs and the wolves. But there, there's a boundary there. There's a place where we're going to rebuke people. That's why he's telling us when we do this, we have to do it in brotherly love. And so approach your brother in that way. Look to them and say, this is, this is what you should be doing, brother or sister. And then Jesus has given us a very careful method for kicking people out of the church. And it's not, I don't like you today, so you have to leave. He's given us elaborate steps in Matthew on how to do this. You go to them, you approach them. And if it's done right, it should take way too long before you actually get to the point where you go, you're out, you're just not repentant. Because what we're hoping is along the way, we'll be reminding them, you have been born again of, of see, that's imperishable. You, you have been born again and brought into God's family. There is an obedience to the truth that you should be walking in. And so that's the care that we have to take with this. It's, this is the care that we have for each other in the flock. So don't look at me and go, Tim will sort it all out. Read Matthew. If your brother sins against you, go get Tim and, and take him over there and, and have Tim rebuke him. No, you go talk to him. This is the responsibility of all of us. The role of the elders is to equip you for this stuff, to make you aware of this, to keep you alert to these things so that we can help each other and shepherd each other. Now, we're going to be watching over. We're watching you. But the point is, care for each other with a brotherly love, a affection from a pure heart. And so with that in mind, let's pray for each other. Let me pray for you now. Lord, we thank you that you have built us into the body of Christ. And Lord, I confess that at times I wrestle with the beauty of the body of Christ. But the scriptures tell me the abiding word of God that will never fail, your words that will outlast creation, tell me that you have ransomed a bride for yourself, that you have washed her in your blood so that she would be presented to you pure and clean and beautiful. And Lord, who am I to argue with your work? Who am I to argue with your choice on who you foreknew, who you elected, who you have sanctified by the work of your Holy Spirit, who you've brought into the family? I don't get to tell my brother or sister you're out. It's your position. The hand doesn't get to tell the, the eye, I have no need of you. Be gone. Lord, you have created the body of Christ. May we all live that truth. And I pray, Lord, that as we do these things, that we would encourage each other to be elect exiles in hope as we await the coming of our King. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.